Good morning, everybody. Very warm welcome to today's um, breakfast seminar on uh, Lebanon's current crisis and prospects for uh, recovery. Very glad to see so many of you here this morning. My name is Christian Berghardt-Wicken. I am uh, leading PRIO's Middle East Center. The PRIO Middle East Center is a um, multi-year effort funded by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, uh, administered uh, with a grant from the Research uh, Council of Norway. Uh, it's um, now in its um, fourth year, and we're uh, looking at uh, the future past the turn of the year, but we'll get back to that. We host a series of Mideast Breakfast Seminars. Those seminars are early in the morning for busy people who craves intellectual food for thought on their way to work and combine that with a breakfast. Hence, the, com the format is also quite compact, one hour, and we do want to respect that limitation. And we look at Reichberg, who will take us through the event on Lebanon. Please, Greg. Uh, thanks very much, Christian. So, um, first of all, great to see you all here this morning. As you know from the event announcement, our topic for this morning is set in the context of a dialogue forum that our PRIO's Middle East Center has initiated in Lebanon. The idea of establishing this forum was prompted a little over two years ago by a PRIO friend, uh, David Beasley, executive director of the World Food Program. Uh, he had just made a visit to Beirut in the aftermath of the harbor explosion that took place on the 4th of August, uh, uh, nine, uh, 2020. Beasley had gone to Beirut on a needs assessment mission. He came away with the impression that despite the scale of the disaster, the international community would be reluctant to make sizable contributions because of the perception, some would say the inevitability, that much of these funds would end up in the pockets of the usual suspects, the sectarian elites that run the country. He came away with the suggestion that Prio should start a dialogue among Lebanese to discuss pathways towards political renewal in the country. So Khalid Zaza and I set out on this endeavor. And I'll spare you the, you know, the fine details about how we ended up walking down this road together. Under PRIO auspices, we have already org organized one conference that took place last June. Khalid will tell you about that conference shortly. So we have three panel, panelists with us this morning. Khalid Zaza from Zaza Consulting and a PRIO associate. We have Shatil Selvik from NUPI. And we have Maya Yanmir from the University of Oslo's Faculty of Law. Our first speaker will be Shatil, who will provide an overview on the shape of Lebanon's current crisis and how the crisis came about. Afterwards, Maya who has just returned from Lebanon, where she is conducting research on the Syrian refugees. Um, the refugees account right now for about a fifth of the total population of Lebanon. So Maya will discuss how the refu refugee population fits into the overall crisis, and the, a crisis which is at once economic, social, and political. The main government narrative is that these refugees are the chief cause of the crisis. Our third speaker is Khalid. We have accorded Khalid five extra minutes of speaking time because he has more to discuss than the previous two speakers. First, he will give some background on the sectarian political arrangement in Lebanon, which dates from the post-Civil War period. Then Khalid will explain how the protest movement, which famously began on the 17th of October 2019, how this protest movement has led to the emergence of a real political alternative in Lebanon. That is to say, an alternative to the sectarian elite consensus that has ruled the country for the last three decades. One sign that an alternative is taking root was the election last May of a new block of reform-minded parliamentarians. 
Finally, Khalid will explain how our dialogue initiative fits into this push for political renewal. Okay, so Shatil. Thank you, Greg. And thanks for the invitation for organizing this event. It's nice to see so many people here. Um, as Greg said, um, I will give an overview of the, of the current crisis, but just tell you how I got into the study of Lebanon is that I, for the past f five, six years, I've been working on a project about journalism in Lebanon, actually Lebanon and Tunisia. So over these years, I've been t interviewing uh, lots of Lebanese journalists together with um, Jakob Hegelt, who used to be a prayer scholar. And we have written a book called Journalism in the Grey Zone, which will come out in February. Um, and I will um, not discuss that here, but just to say, kind of, that's the, the side of Lebanon I know the best. But I will give a more broader overview. First, about the economic collapse that we are witnessing in, um, in Lebanon. Because, as you probably heard, the World Bank has characterized Lebanon's economic crisis as one of the worst the world has seen since the 1850s. Perhaps no other country has witnessed a similar drop in the standard of living in the course of three years, as Lebanon has done between 2019 and 2022. To give you some figures, the GDP declined by 21.4 percent in 2020, then by 10.5 percent in 2021, and is projected to fall another 6.5 percent in 22. The Lebanese pound has lost around 95 percent of its value, uh, driving up prices and demolishing the purchasing power of all who lack access to dollar. Fuel prices have soared um, as the authorities have lifted subsidies. Diesel prices went up 2,000% in one year. Inflation, of course, is hitting the poor and vulnerable the most. And for instance, people who live on fixed income. Poverty rates have skyrocketed. Around 80% are classified as poor now. Lifetime savings have been wiped out through bank restrictions on withdrawal and inflation. Unemployment increased from 11.4% in 2018-19 to 29.6% in 2022. Basically, the country is living on remittances from the Lebanese diaspora. And there is a mass brain drain going on because the well-educated, for example, health personnel are leaving and a growing number of Lebanese express that they would like to leave. Now, this economic crisis has been followed by a collapse of the state. The Lebanese state was never very strong, but is today in free-falling. It lacks resources to provide public services and even to pay its own employees. Thus, Lebanon has become a state that is not only financially ruined, but also where bureaucrats who used to perform a variety of essential tasks no longer come to work. Those who do show up report that there is no paper or ink or pens or envelopes or functioning bathrooms or even running water. Since there is no electricity most of the time, employees must climb the stairs of the buildings in total darkness. Moreover, as of the 1st of November this year, Lebanon has a complete absence of executive powers as the government has resigned and the president's term has ended. Parliament has yet to approve a budget for the present year. 
And as you know, the social consequences of this crisis are enormous. And desperation leads many people to seek their way out. We have seen that every day small boats with irregular migrants depart from uh, Lebanon. Several have capsized, leading to a horrific loss of life. Lebanon has suffered from accumulated blows in the past decade, starting with this, the war in Syria, which resulted in the arrival of um, at least one million refugees, as Maya will talk more about. The country has the highest number of refugees per capita in the world. Of course, the, the protests, the enormous protests that broke out in October 2019 have had an impact so has the COVID-19 pandemic, the, the Beirut port explosion in August 2020. However, the economic crisis would not be as severe were it not for the way the country's politicians have handled it, or perhaps I should say have not handled it. Because I think that the spectacular collapse of the Lebanese economy since 2019 has been met with an even more spectacular inaction from the country's decision makers. Despite international pressures from actors such as the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, Lebanon has yet to present a macro-financial stabilization and recovery plan. Despite widespread social protests, there has been no sign of economic and political reform. The UN has described Lebanon's crisis as a man-made crisis. The World Bank called it deliberate depression, orchestrated by the country's elite that has long captured the state and lived off its economic rents. Lebanon desperately needs an economic relief package negotiated with international donors. But the influence of the Lebanese banking sector in the process blocks negotiations with the International Monetary Fund. The UN blames the central bank, Le Banque du Liban, for having played a key role in the crisis. First, because of the lack of transparency, it has not published profit and loss statements since 2002. Secondly, it offered artificially high interest rates to commercial banks and wealthy depositors. And thirdly, it maintains multiple exchange rates, which is a source of corruption. As the crisis unfolded, well-connected individuals knowledgeable about the coming disaster rushed to move their capital out of Lebanon, as the government stood back and did nothing. Connections between politicians and the private sector reached the highest level of political power in the country. Lebanon ranked 154th out of 180 economies in the Transparency International Corruption Perception Index for 2021. Links between politicians and the banking sector are a particular source of concern. In 2014, it was estimated that individuals closely linked to political elites control 43% of the assets in the commercial banking sector. 18 out of 20 banks had major stakeholders linked to political elites and eight families controlled 29% of the sector's total assets. At least 30 politicians or their close family members are currently shareholders or members of the board of directors of commercial banks. In essence, there is no hope for accountability in Lebanon until the banking sector is reformed. Now, what are the consequences of all of this? Um, and that's, I think, part of what we will discuss. I will only give 
one element of discussion. I think we could say that the political elite in Lebanon has built its political power on two key resources, sectarianism and clientelism. The citizen protest movement that began in 2015 and exploded really in October 2019 has worked hard to do away with these. Uh, Jakob and I have studied how this played out in the media sphere, with journalists trying to shift the focus from conflict between identity groups to conflict between ordinary people and the corrupt elites. So, for instance, uh, trying to do journalism that focused more on every ordinary people and as, as opposed to just following the press conferences of politicians. Sorry, yeah. and, and, and kind of so the emergence of kind of civic activist journalism, the emergence of a new independent uh, professional journalist union, now, the point, though, is there is a risk that Lebanon's collapse will bring back sectarianism and clientelism with full force. Why is that? Because in the absence of a functioning central government and with humanitarian needs peaking, sectarian leaders will rush to fill the vacuum left by the state by providing social, financial, and health, health services while doubling down on their polarizing discourse. Uh, Lebanon's sectarian system has, on several occasions, fed on crisis. I'll stop there. Thanks. Thanks very much, Shatil. Um, and uh, Maya. So I'm sorry that I'm going to have to continue painting a bleak picture. Um, I, uh, I just came back from, from uh, Beirut a short uh, while ago, and I think among many of those who I've been uh, meeting with over the past um, past few years actually, there is a, a sentiment that the worst is yet to come. Um, that Lebanon has not yet hit rock bottom. And in many respects, this is a very confusing environment for everybody to be in. Uh, it has a heavy toll, not, not the least on the uh, mental health of, of most people in the country. Um, who are having to deal with multiple layers of, of, of crisis along the lines of what uh, Shetel described uh, just now. Um, so this widespread hopelessness and, and helplessness, it's not only visible in the Lebanese population. We also see this uh, within the large refugee uh, and migrant communities uh, that call uh, Lebanon home now. Um, so, I think the view from Lebanon when it comes to Syrian refugees in particular, it's, it's bleaker than, uh, than ever. And it's largely caused by the politics of, of Lebanon. It's brought about by years of negative pressure and years of negative discourse on, about Palestinian and Syrian refugees, uh, about migrants at large. And I think what's, what's really noticeable and apparent in this crisis is that Lebanese politicians who uh, normally are very divided about most things, they come together about around one thing here, and that is the broad consensus that Syrian refugees should return home immediately. So there is consensus around that across the board, I would say. And as, as Greg was saying initially as well, we often hear that, uh, that Lebanon, uh, the country that hosts the most refugees per capita in the world, is at a breaking point that it cannot take uh, more refugees. We've been hearing this for at least 10 years now. Um, and as, as we've heard, it is at a breaking point, but it is not because of the Syrian refugees. 
So I think it's it's clear for anybody working on these issues in, in Lebanon that it's become very common to hear both among Lebanese politicians but also among uh, many uh, in, in the population uh, that the country's refugees are to blame uh, for many of the things that have gone wrong in the country. Everything from the lack of electricity uh, to the economic crisis to what we're seeing today right now which is a, a growing cholera outbreak. Um, but recent research uh, that has been done over, over the past few years, among others by uh, Katrina Brun and her team, that it, they have showed that the arrival of Syrian refugees did not really have this type of impact on the Lebanese uh, economy. So when Syrians began to arrive in Lebanon in 2011, uh, at the beginning of their country's war, they came to a country that was already in a downward spiral uh, and downward economic trend. And I would like to echo what Shetel already said about this, uh, what the World Bank has, has pushed as the deliberate uh, crisis, one born out of a political mismanagement and, and corruption. But the scapegoating of, uh, of refugees and Syrian refugees perhaps in particular has created an increasingly hostile um, environment for refugees in, in Lebanon. And I'll just give some examples of, of this hostility. Um, today, we, we know that more than 80% of Syrian refugees lack legal residency, exposing them to the constant threat of, of deportation. Uh, more than 90% are below the poverty line, uh, although, as, as Shetel uh, mentioned as well, all, about 80% of the, of the Lebanese population in total are also below the poverty line. UNRWA reported just days ago that the poverty levels among Palestinian refugees jumped from 70% at the beginning of this year to 93% now in October. And we're seeing rising reports of, of violence and discrimination among refugees. Uh, and again, as Shetit was saying, more Syrians as well as Lebanese and Palestinians are taking these dangerous boat trips uh, in a last-ditch attempt to get to Europe. But to be completely honest with you, um, refugees in Lebanon have few allies at the moment. This past election cycle, uh, the few new independent uh, candidates actually offered little hope uh, to refugees, largely ignoring the question of refugees and focusing instead on the economic crisis. Uh, I would like to say that refugees have been mainly absent in the political discourse since 2019 until this summer. So in July, Lebanon's Minister of the Displaced revived a plan from 2018 to force 15,000 Syrian refugees a month to return to Syria, against their wishes if need be. The minister claimed that the war in Syria was over, that the country has become safe. We know, however, that uh, not all of the returns that have taken place already, uh, albeit in small scale, are free and informed, and that Syria is, is far from safe for everyone. And we've actually heard very little international condemnation uh, over these planned returns, and the so-called anti-establishment MPs, the new MPs in Parliament, uh, they have likewise been quite, quite silent uh, on these issues. Um, we have some who have expressed sympathy for, for refugees and, uh, and their issues, but we also, it's a mixed bag. We have MPs such as Cynthia Zarazir, who's uh, gone out and, and almost advocated for a, a genocide of Syrian refugees in, in uh, Lebanon, something that she uh, later regretted her wording about, but still she, she, um, the sentiment remained. Uh, she argued. So I think it, it's clear that uh, refugees will remain a presence in the years to come in, in Lebanon. So even if the government were to succeed in returning 15,000 Syrian refugees every month, which is 
very unlikely, uh, and in doing so, obviously risking human rights uh, abuses and persecution for those who were sent back. But even if they managed this, it would take more than eight years um, to to send everybody uh, or for or for every, everybody to return. So I think the the refugee question is obviously something that needs to be on the agenda of any national dialogue. Um, and I think it's important that this dialogue also uh, involves the, the voices of those um, uh, in Lebanon's refugee communities. So, thank you. Thanks very much, Maya. Hello. Hello, good morning, everybody. And uh, thank you all for coming uh, today. And uh, thank you, Greg, for organizing this as well. Um, so I, I will start to first talk about the sectarian system in Lebanon. So the sectarian system in Lebanon goes back to the 1860s. But now, when uh, in the introduction of Greg, we mentioned um, we mentioned it after the civil war in the 90s, uh, because the way, like constitutionally, um, Lebanon is a sectarian state by by three things. First. Uh, on the power-sharing system that determines um, the head of the state, uh, the, the speaker of the house, and the um, prime minister to be from, you know, like um, a Sunni, a Maronite, and a Shia. This already existed before uh, the civil war. Uh, but the difference, um, and then also like you, ha you have on the level of administrative uh, powers that um, all the employees from the first um, degree should also uh, be divided into uh, equally between Muslims and Christians. Uh, also, the society in Lebanon is sectarian as, as we have officially 18 sects. But if you ask a basic Lebanese, what, what are those 18 sects? I don't think everybody would have the answer. They would have the main uh, sects, but they wouldn't really go into the details. Um, but the problem is that after the 90s, this power sharing system, um, that is, of course, it is, it is a little bit hard to have the system. It's slow, but it's not the system to blame. It is more to blame the warlords that became actually the, the faces of the system and the sectarian divide. Um, because Basically, this power-sharing system um, should uh, not influence the institutions themselves. Uh, but the idea that the Lebanese uh, regime or leaders had is to divide the cake. Uh, so this is what resulted in the power-sharing system now means clientism. Uh, it means that um, uh, the Sunni leader is uh, the one to appoint the Sunni administrative uh, staff, the judges, um, and in, uh, in all administrations as well. The same goes to other um, politicians and their sectarian affiliation. Um, and now we see that this system has impacted everything. Uh, like, for example, when, when Seattle was speaking about the elect electricity, for example, uh, we see that now the lack of electricity to be provided by the state is actually one of the reasons is that private generators are also owned by those sectarian leaders. Uh, anyway, so, so the sectarian system in itself as a system, it might have a lot of negative impacts to the functioning of the state of Lebanon, yet uh, the problem is not completely in it. The problem is actually in this six leaders or the leaders uh, in Lebanon that utilize this system to control their population, their population. So, um, I will I will discuss now like the um, the uprising of 2019, and I will start by uh, by mentioning that this that this movement actually started in 2015 when the Lebanese realized. Okay, so one step back, the Lebanese always try to find an alternative. So there is no electricity, we go to private generators. There is no water, we buy water from private companies. But until 2015, when we had the garbage crisis in Lebanon, we all realized that actually we need a state, you know, because you can get alternatives to everything. But now when we are having this issue with the garbage crisis, even if the civil society or organizations or local neighborhoods try to do something with it, there is nowhere to put it. So this was the first moment that people realized that we need to work towards a state. In 2019, um, 
what happened is that um, there was a mass, uh, there was um, wildfires in all of Lebanon, and then the second day after the country, uh, the administration had failed to do anything about it. Um, we realized, or the country, the, uh, the politicians realized that we're going for an economic crash. But instead of doing some reforms or going after corruption, uh, they, um, they wanted to increase taxes. So um, automatically the, um, and, and very suddenly, uh, the population of Lebanon, all of it, and all of the cities, the main cities in Lebanon, uh, impulsively went and took the streets. And this, in my opinion, was the first time that we have uh, this protest movement for the rights and um, uh, the quality of life. And um, the discussion against the sectarian system started. And then the other discussion about corruption always started. And this is something completely new in Lebanon. So the idea was like, we always had this idea that um, uh, we have some sort of democracy in Lebanon, but that democracy was only kind of bounded if leader X is attacking leader Y, uh, they would use the, their own supporters to do that. But the actual threat to this political elites or the leaders came when their own supporters turned against them. And this was evident in the first three weeks of, uh, of um, the protest movement, which people in Lebanon likes, like to call it the revolution. So um, the so-called revolution managed to do a lot of things that were not visible before. For, for the Lebanese, they did not really expect this to happen. Um, first of all, I understand that Lebanese society, for once, had the ability to defend itself. So for once, they went all together beyond sectarian lines, demanding the same things, which are transparency, um, the end of impunity, um, independence, all of, all of the very white titles that we've been hearing about. Uh, but we had really little chance to actually practice. Um, so I was as well, like I was in, uh, in Lebanon during this protest wave, and it was really shocking to see that the Lebanese community has this ability to self-organize. And it was really mind-blowing to see how people all came together in this huge solidarity. And we understood then that this societal sectarianism does not really, really exist in the way that we were taught that it exists. So this narrative was actually belonging to the uh, what we call the, the elites in Lebanon. And it was the threat always of a sectarian conflict. But it wasn't, you know, like when you, see, when you saw the protests, you understand that the threat of a civil war does not exist in that sense. Anyway, like, um, so this protest movement have given some hope. Of course, now when we are talking about the crisis, we understand this protest movement maybe had accelerated the crash. Yet it, is, um, it had provided some, uh, some hope as well. So for the first time in Lebanon, we also get to see that um, there is uh, the left of, like there is now a, a political spectrum of right and left. We never really had this for the last 30 years. It ceased to exist at the beginning of the, of the new, uh, after the peace treaty in Lebanon, the Taif. We did not witness any movement <coughs> inside unions, syndicates. Uh, and, and for the first time, we saw that the population of Lebanon was interested again to go to reforms in unions, syndicates, um, student unions. Uh, for example, in Lebanon, we don't have a student union since the beginning of the civil war. But now we have something that is an alternative student union. For example, like Shetel was talking about journalists in Lebanon, this uh, protest wave have also uh, given us uh, something that we, we didn't really see uh, since the 90s, which is independent media that is not controlled by the politicians. And I, I can give two examples, like Megaphone or Daraj Media, when we see that actually now the news is relevant to us. It is not about what this politician said against this politician. It was more in-depth, talking about corruption, talking about impunity. Um, but as well, um, after the Beirut blast, we came to understand that this regime would do anything to protect itself. So. 
uh, until today, no, like no one of the ministers or the people who had the responsibility is being trialed. Um, instead, there are some few employees working for the administration of the port have been uh, have been um, in prison uh, as an scapegoat. So, but at the same time, the society is not, or the community in Lebanon is not, is not anymore the way it was before 2019. Now people are more engaged, trying to find a solution. And sometimes that's, that's a little bit uh, negative when you feel that, that they are always trying to come up with a solution that replaces the responsibility of the state, in a sense. Uh, knowing about all this, um, the situation in Lebanon, the crisis, uh, the uprising, the protest movement, we had to, how much time do I have? Yeah? Three more yeah. yeah. So we came to understand that there is a new majority in Lebanon, uh, a majority of people that wants to actually be engaged in change. Um, so this is how we came about our, our project in Lebanon. So we thought of the new stakeholders, who are, who are the people who are actually wanting to change? And then um, the planning of the project came with, um, with all of the people we mentioned, like the syndicates, the unions, the student unions, the um, journalists, independent media, and the new parliamentarians, uh, reformists. Um, we realized that, the, that we have to work first with the society. So, uh, so the social political impact. And this is why we had this event in June uh, that gathered together the new majority, which we think, uh, uh, sorry, what we think is the new majority, that had the spectrum of conservatives as well as progressive movements that came to compile their visions on how they envision Lebanon and what kind of reforms do we actually need to reach this new Lebanon. Uh, it was very impressive to see how people are willing to engage, willing to participate, give us uh, suggestions on what we should be discussing, how we should be discussing it. So um, our event was on two days. It had four sessions and uh, it was, we had 30 participants that really engaged in, in a very fruitful uh, discussion that in my opinion could establish for like wide lines of what are the reforms we need, at least for our first session was on society. Uh, and that was very, very much enriching, giving us hope on, okay, that there is the will to change in Lebanon and we are equipping or helping uh, those to come together as a neutral entity because a lot of um, initiatives have been tried in Lebanon. And as my discussion with Greg yesterday, we were talking how Lebanon is the graveyard of this kind of dialogue initiatives, uh, especially when it is focused on the wrong things. Not the wrong things, I'm, I'm sorry, but like it, it has been always targeting like this uh, interfaith um, dialogues or like dialogues within or among the political elites. But it's time to engage the Lebanese society, the Lebanese social, uh, like uh, civil society, organizations, syndicates, to kind of come up with what we actually need. And it is, it is something that is on the, uh, on the policy making aspect. Uh, we now see that this new parliamentary, parliamentarian block of 13 reformist uh, uh, members, they are they are new in what they are doing and what we try to compile for them is actually very useful because they understand what the public wants and they want, they want to, to proceed through it but they need to collect as well uh, the opinions of the people and the, compile this kind of visions. What we are planning later on is also to engage in, um, in a dialogue around the topic of economy because it is the most pressing thing now in Lebanon. Uh, and after that, we're also planning to, um, to discuss policy in Lebanon. This policy that, for Maya, would uh, include as well what we want or how to compile visions towards immigrants and the refugees in Lebanon. Um, so we're trying to, to come up with this uh, package of dialogues on these three themes, which started with a societal political uh, aspect, moving now towards the economy, later on towards policy. Um, that's what I have to say. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Khaled.
I'll just add to what Khalid said about the uh, the dialogue group that we had a f after the conference in June we did a follow up meeting uh, in September, uh, which was mainly organized as a kind of focus group day long session to discuss with with our stakeholders or change agents uh, how to move forward, and we got lots of valuable input uh, from them. Uh, we had a long discussion what to call the forum itself, because, you know, we call it a vision for a new Lebanon, uh, a um, uh, vision, uh, a new vision for Lebanon, or a uh, vision for a new Lebanon. These were two alternatives. So, uh, and it was interesting to hear that people said, for instance, well, there are visions, so there's not vision. Uh, and, and some were... Uh, hesitant to call it a vision for a new Lebanon because they said that that can sound almost revolutionary. You know, people might get set that we want to do away with the whole current system, which was not, not what we're aiming at. Um, so, uh, and, and it's at that meeting that, that there was a consensus, a really strong one arose to, to organize the next event around uh, economic issues. And the idea was to talk about the history of the current economic system in Lebanon, the causes of the current conflict, the um, government responses or lack of response to the current, not to, to the crime. Um, I said a moment, the um, uh, government responses to the economic crisis or lack of response, and then finally to discuss possible remedies. Uh, Okay, so I'd like to open, open this up for discussion now to hear from you what, what your thoughts, uh, questions, and comments are. Uh, if I may add something uh, that I forgot actually to mention. <laughs> so, um, so when we were talking about this initiative, uh, we were very careful not to engage with the classical political parties. And uh, we've seen how interesting this uh, was uh, because the people were more free in, in getting to the topics that they really needed to discuss, in a sense. At the same time, um, in a comparative, there was an, a, an initiative lately that engaged as well with this classical um, sectarian parties, and eventually it, um, it didn't really go through. Um, they had to stop the whole initiative because it was sabotaged, in the sense. Um, so this made us more sure that the new uh, majority that we're discussing were the people that we want to engage in, in dialogue with, trying to help and to find what could be better alternative for, uh, alternatives for the future. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Okay, so we'll just open it up to uh, your thoughts about this. I have a question. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. I, I was just wondering, Khaled, I really enjoyed hearing your, your uh, visions um, going forward, which is, offers a much more positive uh, uh, view, I think, than that painted by both Shirtle and myself. Uh, I was just wondering if you have any thoughts on what could uh, refugee representation in this dialogue look like? How would we envision that? What space could be carved out? Yeah, um, I like that you mentioned as well because you're following. So you mentioned Cynthia Zerazir. But uh, also I want to uh, remind you of something like at the beginning of this protest move, uh, if you remember, uh, some people masked themselves like, or hid themselves under the Lebanese flag pretending to be belonging to this protest move and they, went and they protested against the Syrian, uh, Syrian um, refugees. And then the, the quick response from the people was actually to protest with uh, the Syrian refugees. Um, now when we are talking about engaging, um, yes, uh, actually in our first event we had, um, I think you know her, Manal Kortam, uh, uh, who was running for this uh, made-up position for the parliament in Lebanon representing uh, uh, Palestinian refugees. And uh, the idea uh, was also to engage, because they are living in Lebanon, they are using the infrastructure of Lebanon, they are part of Lebanon, uh, is to engage them as well. But um, we're reserving this as well for this, the policy um, dialogue, 
where we also want to address this uh, through involving uh, refugees and, uh, in this discussion as well. Um, and as well, you have this uh, parliamentarian bloc that is actually actively now, at least I know about Brahim Naimni, that they are working on a policy paper uh, for the refugee population in Lebanon. And they have been uh, very vocal against uh, the practice of the Lebanese state lately and the general security in Lebanon, deporting Syrians by force. So, yeah. I hope this answers your question. Thank you. Uh, do you discuss visions for um, having the, what you call the new majority, actual, becoming actual majority in parliament? Because that's a crucial point in the end. It's a parliamentarian system. It's a democracy of sorts. So you can't, I mean, in, 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 I'm, I'm not sure if the big problem is that the lack of dialogue, the lack of talking. God knows they talk a lot. But, but how do you um, cross the threshold? <clears throat> how do you organize? How do you uh, make a common program and a common stance or at least a, a, a minimum of, of a sort of agreement across the board? Because today, or what we saw during the last parliamentary uh, parliament election is that you know there was no none of the list was uh, represented in, in more than one district for instance it's, it's very very fractured um, uh, first of all just to clarify I mean like the our approach or my approach with pre Lebanon is not political um, it is engaging of course everything at the end if you break it down it has a political aspect into it um, but to be clear, like uh, when you look at the um, electoral law in Lebanon, um, this basically why you know like not that much of new parliamentarians were elected, but for but it is you know like as a result of this protest movement, it was also very much surprising even for us that 13 members at least, if you're not calculating the independent ones, were able to breach in the parliament this time, and if you if you are following now, you understand that the whole. Um, kind of attack from the, from the classical parties is towards those uh, 13 members of the parliament. Because the threat is that this is somehow creating this snowball that eventually will affect, like when you look at the results in the south of Lebanon that someone could actually breach in the south of Lebanon, this is completely new. But as well people, like when, when we were designing the project, we also came across um, the fact that um, uh, the people, um, we're so keen into um, uh, addressing, you know, electoral law, this kind of uh, things that at this time we're not able to, to, to do much in. Um, but at the same time, the, it, is start, it started somewhere. And in my opinion, it, it can evolve more when we are engaging in this kind of dialogues. So what we did in this um, dialogue is that we also, like when I said the conservatives, those conservatives are people who normally voted for the classical parties. But during these elections, they found themselves uh, like they don't really have much options because they don't know these reformists. They do not understand what is a secular system. They always think that the secular system is kind of going to attack their um, religious rights uh, in a sense, uh, which is the actual, actually the narrative of the elite. Um, so in my opinion, the reality of the new majority is not only reflected in the parliament. It is what the people talk. It is what the people are heading towards. And as well, it is a, problem, uh, it is a generational thing. Like If you look at the new generation in Lebanon, it thinks completely different. And those, those who you want to build on, because those are the, the people who are going to vote in the new elections. So, Hi, thanks for the great uh, presentation. I have a, a question for either Greg or Khaled. Uh, about this new uh, political parties, this, this, these new lists, you know, obviously, like, uh, traditionally, the clientelist sectarian system that you have in Lebanon is based on that various political elites are able to dismantle the state, uh, capture its resources, and offer services to people, and, uh, you know, pub public jobs, treatments in private hospitals, uh, electricity, these types of services in return for political loyalty, 
right? So they wheel them people into you know their sectarian constituents into their um, their their own pockets basically. And I was wondering, you know, since these new new parties obviously don't have the same resources, like how do they engage with people, uh, the working classes? What can they possibly offer that competes with the system? Hey. I, I'm not able to answer this directly. I, I will say, though, that the International Monetary Fund is putting demands on the government to change its behavior in, 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 on some of the points that, that you mentioned. Um, the, uh, and so there, there's a kind of battle underway, you know, between the I, IMF and, and the government. Uh, and it's not unclear how that's going to play out. But if the IMF gets its way, it's going to be harder for these the, um, sort of um, the, the members of the current elite to capture the state in the way that they've been doing it thus far. But I'll, the rest of the question I'll leave to you. Thank you very much for the question, Erling. Um, when you think about it right now with the crisis, I mean, it is not, no longer very much tempting to be employed anywhere in the state of Lebanon. Like if you're a, a lieutenant in Lebanon, you would be earning $70. So, so um, when, when I was discussing this uh, power sharing system, and then I brought up this clientist network of the politicians, um, I understand that uh, the problem was that um, uh, our politicians were kind of advocating for this sectarian rights is that they are protecting the sectarian rights. Uh, um, but what flourished after the protest movement in 2019 was actually social justice. Like if you give me social justice, then I do not want uh, the sectarian rights. So, so basically the threat to the Lebanese state and the functionality of the Lebanese state is when you have this kind of political leaders because it is not in their interest that the state is functioning, in a sense. So they can still kind of give jobs, um, uh, give money, give power. But after the crisis now, when we saw, like, for example, in the Lebanese elections, when you saw those um, campaigns, uh, of course, it's, it wasn't the same funding, for example, between a big political party. But it is not only the idea of funding. Like, if you noticed now, uh, Tayyar Mustaqbal, which is the future movement headed by the Sunni leader Hariri, was the first to actually leave the battle. So this motion and this, mm, uh, this push from the Lebanese society uh, is very much organic uh, grassroots movements that, for example, now like the diaspora was funding uh, the campaigns of those uh, reformists. So the Lebanese society, this is what I want to build in, because the Lebanese society is really, really active. And we have this solidarity among us, in a way, that we can, we can somehow find the alternative. Yes, they are, they are, the political elites are much more equipped with like, uh, money, uh, power, and this kind of thing. But when you break it down now, after this uh, movement, we saw that this is not the only tools uh, to change in Lebanon. So. Um, so this is what I would like to build on. Thanks. We have the other. Yeah, uh, I'd like to pick up on what you've been saying and, and what Bendik asked also about this uh, change or reform uh, MPs. I mean, it's worth noting also that the Lebanese actually put a lot of trust in the elections, uh, which is... In, in itself a, a good sign, I mean, uh, not weapons, but ballot boxes. But then came this 13 or 16, depending how you, you view it, uh, they were elected. But it's turned out, uh, or it's become very clear that there's no common program. Uh, they lack the ability to work together. We've seen it now acutely with the uh, election of a new president. But maybe most of all, there is no program uh, for how to pass anti-corruption legislation, to pass all the necessary legislation to get the IMF in, I mean, to get Lebanon back on track. So I would like to, to ask all of you about some reflections on 
where are we going from here? I mean, the, the reform MPs, they don't have a comprehensive plan for this. I mean, they're, they're really split. And it's true. I mean, uh, like you said, Khaled, uh, for the first time, uh, someone uh, opposed to Hezbollah got elected from South Lebanon. Yes, but it wasn't a Shia because all the Shias are allied with the, the, the duo, either Amal or Hezbollah, was a Christian from Ebelesa who was elected, uh, actually. So, I mean, the Shia monolith is still there. So how could these election results be transformed into something to, to get Lebanon back on track? Chateau, would you, would you like to venture into this? Well, uh, I, uh, I have the role of the pessimist. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not going to give We the, have two pessimists I mean, here. <laughs> what I've been... What I was trying to say, I mean, this discussion of whether state collapse that we're witnessing is kind of the result of you know an elite that is not able to govern perhaps because it lacks the fund or just everything is falling apart like this and everything erodes into criminal networks and everything is floating i mean or this the other idea which i was kind of defending and it was based on a actually a literature on, on state collapse in africa is that you know, this, the state collapse can actually be a governance strategy. This is actually what you do to preserve your own power. Um, you just sit very quietly in the ship uh, and let the ship sink. And, I mean, and that was what I was alluding to, how it's spectacular in action. Um, so that's, that's telling me that this is a wanted drowning and that the idea is that if everything just collapses, you know, the parliament can do nothing because there's no, as you said, uh, <laughs> no alternative perhaps, then in the end, you know, everyone will come begging for the ones who actually have money in their bank accounts, even though these bank accounts are abroad, and said, please uh, give us bread or give, give us something. So, uh, so in that sense, the state collapse as a governing strategy is just you know, driving this place towards uh, uh, ethnic conflict, even um, desperate poverty, uh, state collapse, and in order to reinforce or generate a new energy for your clientelistic networks. I mean, this clientelism and sectarianism has been so discredited in Lebanon, and we saw that in the uh, November, October 2019 process. So the question is, how can you save this? And perhaps the only solution, if, if the situation gets so bad that, you know, they will still want. And that's why you see the IMF and the World Bank and the UN using extremely harsh, harsh messages. I mean, you never see the UN writing about a country as they write about Lebanon. Uh, usually the UN is so, so careful not to hurt anyone's feeling. Uh, the reports from the UN about Lebanon are harsh. They're devastating. So the strategy from the international community seems to be to kind of out uh, this the, the strategy of, of the Lebanese elite to do nothing and kind of put the, the entire blame on them. Say, we know what you're trying to achieve. You know, by f getting the, the world's attention, perhaps you can somehow push them into a corner. Uh, but I think that's... Um, and that's needed if you want to bring about change. Uh, Maya, would you? In the interest of time, I, okay. I think maybe Khaled should have Khaled, yeah. yes. okay. last um, word. Yeah, well, I mean, to be optimistic. <laughs> uh, now, I mean, like uh, normally in the Middle East, at least, when you see that um, a president have uh, you know, finished his term, normally they do not go back home. But, it, you know, like even that Michel Aoun was the head of the state, he had to go home. So I still kind of believe that there is this kind of um, hope, even uh, going through the um, uh, democratic ways of change. 
Uh, but we have to also realize that this is something that is new to Lebanon. Um, and Lebanon, as you know, ha have been, for example, until 2005 under a Syrian mandate. So um, this is coming that the Lebanese are able to govern them, themselves. themselves. Uh, now we see, yes, like as uh, Shetel so, uh, said, that this, is, this collapse is, might be also uh, intentional. But I mean, the hope is, is with initiatives that are similar to ours that could engage people. Like our first challenge was to identify what kind of topics you want to talk about. So for example, in our first session, we had to talk about, about identity and perceptions of the Lebanese identity because that was disputed someday. Um, then we understood that, that the things that get the people together are much more than the people that uh, divide them. And as well now with this new majority is that the new majority, all of those people are, um, are not having the basic services from the state, which kind of put them together in a solidarity to kind of find a solution. So it is a new, of course, um, experience to have um, this elements of change inside the parliament. But of course, uh, only those parliamentarians um, to have to do all of this is not going to happen. Uh, it should come with the solidarity from the Lebanese community itself. So, but I mean, we have to try. Uh, it's, it's the only thing we can do. And if I could just say, I suppose in concluding words, that uh, I mean, there are reasons for pessimism, but I think it's important not to wallow, wallow in the pessimism either. I mean, we need to look for signs of hope, indications grounds for hope and to try to build on them. And I have to say, I was really impressed during my, you know, the, the time at the conference about the sort of high level of discourse that, that I encountered there. Not, not, not just the, you know, the academics, you might expect that, who, who spoke, but also these new parliamentarians. Uh, and I've done a, some work in, just as a point of contrast, in Iraq. And I you know, over the, the years of turmoil there, there's been an erosion of their sort of educational institutions and sort of the, you know, the, the thought milieu. So I could see how much stronger Lebanon is in, in, this, in, this, in this way. And that, that's something that, that I think can, can really have a, an impact going forward. So listen, thanks everyone. Great, great to have, have you, had you here. Thanks, <laughs> presenters. For, thank you.